We've now arrived again to the Gospel of John, and we will be looking at where Pastor Jason left off, and we've arrived at this particular portion, coming back to a dialogue of sorts, in which we will be hearing the responses, and it's very interesting that John the Beloved will make this indication here, in particular, at this point in the chapter. With your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John. We will be going with verse 16 on to verse 20. It reads, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while? And you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring amongst yourselves what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most surely, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you on this day, your Sabbath day, and all that this day engulfs. And on this day, Lord, as it is consecrated and made holy by your hand, may it be at this time we take in consideration the words of our Master. And let it be a reflection and reminder to us as we see the apostles make their discussion with him as a show of our own frailties, that at times our sorrows, our concerns can overcome our understanding of the truth. But Lord, we thank you in you bringing your son, being that indwellment of grace, truth, and mercy. He saw this, knowing the hearts of man, responded to them in kind to show them he was never going to be far from their presence. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So then, for today's exposition, we just read verses 16 through 20. But to bring this back to full circle, by reminder, when I approached with you chapter 14 in the beginning, I brought to you portions of chapter 16. And it was with intent in, in bringing this back full circle, I'm going to read and bring to your attention verses 25 to 27. And it reads, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. And in this, after giving this to them, the disciples then, as chapter 16 continues, therefore at verse 29, the disciples all of a sudden say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figure of speech. You know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, see, by 
by verses 25 to 27. And we're going to spend more time in it later in other, in other sermons. But by verses 25 to 27, it sheds light on the master's use of figure of speech. And if someone who is just reading chapter 16, they would make an acute and I would say further precise understanding that he's probably speaking in the preceding verses, as we will get to, it's verses 16 through 22 in the particular. But this is not the only time he's used this figure of speech. And we'll get to that. So then for, by analytically looking at what we're looking at today, we're going to use verse 16 as a declarative statement. And then with verses 17 to 20, we're going to parallel upon that. For I'm going to take verse 16 and break it into two. Now, the first distinct thought, the master states, a little while and you will not see me. And in the second distinct thought, he stated again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now, with the idea of verse 16, just taking it as a whole. So the whole statement in its entirety. It shows true, as I showed you at verse 25 in chapter 16, that the master frequently actually employed figurative language. For example, remember in chapter 14 by verses 1 through 4, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also and you know to where I am going. First iteration of figurative language. Again, continuing in chapter 14 by verses 12 through 14. Again, we see it here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask of me in my name, I will do it. Another iteration of figurative language here. By chapter 14 again at 19, verses 19 to 21. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. Furthermore, by verse 8 of 28 in chapter 14, it adds, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. But what we've heard when we read verses 17 through 18, there seems to be an amiss. You see, in chapter 14, any reader, someone who was looking at it, should have discerned all that was spread and stated to the apostles. In their human frailty of mind, they struggled with the understanding of the master's words. And you saw it conveyed 
And we're seeing it here in chapter 16. It persisted. In chapter 14, Thomas expressed uncertainty because he stated to the Lord by verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going now. How can you say we know the way? Philip then sought further assurance and expressed uncertainty by stating this, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So then now, in all the time the Lord has dispelled with chapter 14 and 15, the group articulates the concerns. Verses 17 and 18 of John 16, as we return here, states, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father? What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. You see? This allows us to now properly understand, and we're going to, like I stated before, break the declarative statement by verse 16 into two parts. Because with the way the master is stating this, and I showed you by verse, by chapter 14, he has stated this to calm their hearts. Remember? Do not let your heart be troubled. I have come to bring peace. So when tying this back to verse 16 here, there is no redundancy. In fact, this can be attributed to the way that God taught Adam. You see, in Adam, speaking with God in the cool of the garden, he was teaching him the law. He was teaching him how to live. He was giving him instruction and in how to minister the garden. And of this, Adam tried to make the same attempt with Eve. We noticed by her answer when she was spoke when she spoke with the serpent, and he she and the serpent questioned her upon which the tree and the observance of it. You notice she said, "Do not even touch it." That was not God's words. We can attribute it to that being Adam, and Adam not properly being able to teach his wife showed the fruits of his labor. But God is not slack in how he teaches man. And by showing this with the way the Messiah is conveying to the apostles, the repetition, it's not redundancy. It's a show of his attribute and his personal relationship with his own people. So that is like we learn with the dissertation with the law of God. If you love me, you will know my commandments. But then and also in here, I'm going to tell you the truth. So with the first distinct thought, a little while and you will not see me. The master is reinforcing the nature notion. His departure, yes, is imminent and the brevity of this absence is a point. Though he states a little while, it underscores the immediacy of the moment because it is signaling, 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 signaling. <laughs> it is showing that the departure is at hand. Ah, my mouth is dry. I apologize. Now, the sediment here 
And we're going to get to a little while in that concept because it's said with both thoughts. But I want to bring our attention to the point of You Will Not See Me. It's a show that the hour is now here. By John 16, 32, our master states, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And this indication that the hour is now signifies the unfolding progression of the over arching concept of the hour and of this hour it shows the sacrificial work that he was about to undertake consider he speaks of this notion and watch the phases at which he speaks of this event john 12 20, 27 states of his troubled human soul as the impending hour approaches now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. The subsequent phase of the hour then prompts a more personal engagement with his followers as the disciples take to his crucial teachings. John 13, 3 to 20. John 13, 31 to 35. And John 13, 21 through 30. And as John... 13 verse 1 emphasized that Jesus is aware that his hour was vastly approaching. He wanted to show and express his profound love for his own, that he loved them till the end. So staying within our first thought, the master's statement here aligns in my belief and understanding. He also is showing the fulfillment of scripture. For you see, and telling them, indeed the truth. Again, you will not see me as the narrative progresses by verse 19. We're notating his understanding of the hearts of men. Because you see, Jesus aware of their thoughts. He addresses their unspoken question. Because they did not particularly ask the right question by verse 19. The master states, are you inquiring among yourself what I have said? In this, he shows a fulfillment and understanding of the Old Testament as it shows of the Lord coming, but then also knowing every thought, word, and deed of his creation. In the Old Testament, in passages like 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9, it highlights the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. At 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it emphasized that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in the words of David in Psalms 139, he eloquently writes, starting at verse number 2, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path. And my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue. Ooh. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. So it's considering 
It's unsettling to witness the apostles not fully grasp the master's words and teaching, especially from where he began the two chapters prior. But as I showed you, just as God teaching Adam, John the Beloved, who guided by the Spirit, purposely, purposely included this interaction because it also shows that reflective mirror of us. It shows how our sorrows and concerns clouds our understanding of God's truth. For about 24 to 48 hours prior, the master diligently conveyed that his departure was imminent. But instead of fighting joy in the reassurance of that, as shown with chapter 14 by verse 28, the disciples sorrowed at the absence of his physical presence. But the master in this current phase of what is considered that the hour has now come signals to them that the time is fastly approaching. In fact, it is now. But I'm telling you the truth. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. Again, in the master being all merciful. And he tells them the truth. It aligns with his role as being the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace, as prophetically stated in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And as our master, beloved, embodies all of mercy and seeing the sorrow that is in the hearts of the apostles, he adopts now a approach that is more sympathetical. In contrast to the response that he gave to Philip in John 14, 9, where Jesus exclaimed, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? As we transition to John 16, verse 20, his approach is more straightforward and relatable. Because then, note, most assuredly, by his statement in the beginning, he expresses the truth and the significance of the departure. He states to them in the humanely way, speaking, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But on the contrast, the world will rejoice as you are filled with sorrow. Here now, he's given them the understanding of what is going to transpire in the next 24 to 48 hours. And to be able to tell them the truth is all you ask for from the Messiah. He stated to us, the truth will set you free. But in a personal connection with his own disciples, he is telling them the hour is here and this is what's going to transpire. Now here's a juxtaposition in context. In this hour, because the hour is here, there are two sides to the story. You will weep and lament and become sorrowful while the world rejoices. 
In the phrase, the world rejoice, in this context, it prompts the historical references of which the hour has come. Now, in this, there is a previous incident to show in regards to the world's rejoicing. The Lord, in context, made that very clear. John wrote in chapter 8, by verse 21, when the Messiah speaks of his going, again, these words are not with redundancy, he stated to them, but then watched again. The context here is to the world, in particular here, the Jews. I am going away. You will seek me. You will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews mistakenly found encouragement in what they perceived as a the Messiah's suicidal inclination. Note by the next verse. Verse 22 in chapter 8, the Jews then said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. No. There, their statement lies, their encouragement that you just go away, be gone, and if you have to, take yourself away. But the Messiah stated, no, 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 no. By verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. Now, considering the future incidents that is foretold with the statement of the world will rejoice, it is numerous. I give you, and we're going to get to this in the later chapters of verses, uh, chapters 18 through 20, but I give to you some of the incidents Presented here, at the time when Jesus was battered and scourged and was presented to the crowd during the Passover, the crowd was faced with a choice. They had the tradition to release a prisoner. Mark 15, 6 through 8. And despite Pilate's plea, why, what evil has he done? The crowd continued and always persists, shouting, let him be crucified. In Matthew's account, following Pilate's symbolic washing of his hands in an attempt to absolve himself of the matter, the crowd, as we know, chose Barabbas. But they're in their chilling declaration. And as the Messiah stated, the world will be rejoicing. They even took to bind their encouragement of his death by saying his blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 27, verse 25. As he hung between two robbers, Matthew 27, 38, past buyers mocked him, wagging their heads and taunting him. They stated, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew 27, verse 40, referencing John 2, 19, through 21. Furthermore, stirred by the Sahedrin, the religious leaders joined in and they said this, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. Matthew 27, verse 21. Then, to punctuate this, 
witnessing the Messiah take his last breath, the crowd mentioned in Luke 23, 48, that they beat their chests. For it reads, the whole crowd who came together to that site, as the Messiah took his last breath, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned home. I gave you the juxtaposition with the world rejoicing. We see the other side as they lament and weep and sorrowed. At that moment, in the crucial hour, again, like I stated, the Messiah told them the truth. The phase of the hour has now come where I'm to be delivered into their hands. By Matthew 26, 55 to 56, and Mark 14, 48 to 50. The recounting of the event is this. Scripture has it in that crucial hour as the officers came to him. He said to them, have you not come out? Have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. For well, all this was done that scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And upon him saying these words, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Among those who fled was Peter, notably confronted with the truth. He denied knowing the master three times. And as the rooster crowed twice, he remembered the master's words and wept. Mark 14.72, John 13, verse 38. And like his disciples, those who attended to his every word stood at watch as he hung. Many of them, notably women, who were followers of the Messiah. As Matthew 27, 55 to 56 records, many of them who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him as they looked from afar. Similarly, Luke 23, 49 denotes that all his acquaintances also stood watching from a distance. The master tells us the truth and he told them the truth in that day. The hour has now come. But again, I told you, as Isaiah not Isaiah 6 showed that the master indeed is that embodiment of mercy and truth. And being that wonderful counselor, as Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 had shown in that second portion, and this is how we're segueing to that second thought, he stated here, Again, a little while, you will see me because I go to the Father. See, beloved, our master has always been rich in mercy. And in his wisdom, always know the right statement to say at that time. So in his adjust, adjustment in this new, in this next approach, as he sensed the lingering sorrow in the hearts of his apostles, his straightforward and more relatable tone is here to convey the truth of his departure that he must go. Because as chapter 14 stated, he needs to go prepare a place. But then, as it also stated, I will bring you a helper. All this 
is why in verse 20, he states, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And how? How is this sorrow now tangible to go from being turned, from being something that we're lamenting to something that we can find joyful? Paul states in the most profound statement I think ever spoken throughout history, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54. You see, in the master statement by verse 16, it again shows his testament for fulfilled prophecy by being crucified, dead, and buried, yet death could not hold him because the power of God is going to be shown with the resurrection. Harmonizing the old to the new by Isaiah 25, 8. We see the promise. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Hosea 6, verse 2 states of the resurrection in particular. He will revive us after two days. He will He will rise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Going to show the harmony to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, and here 15, 52, and parcel with verse 55, and a moment in the twinkle of the eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality O death where is your sting O Hades where is your victory a lot of times it gets lost and notice especially we just came from the season of wearing costumes and dress ups People make fun of the resurrection. It's not going to be funny when you realize when you were resurrected, it is not onto life. People don't walk around being mindless zombies as they like to portray it on television, thinking that in their state of sin, God will tolerate that. This doctrine comes with great authority. Because truth be told, everyone is going to die. That's the reality. But not everyone is going to live after death. And can you imagine the amazement on the, the disciples' face when they see the same body that Christ died in is the same body that is shown to them when he reappears. To Thomas, who doubted, he tells him, put your finger here. In Luke, he tells them, give me a fish. It is proper 
to understand the gravity that comes with the resurrection. In the book of Hebrews, it shows the further emphasis of the purpose of the Christ, especially tying in, tying in with his coming. The incarnation, the death and the resurrection is just showed and eloquently stated. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Inasmuch then as the children, having partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subjected to bondage. You know, it's amazing that a lot of individuals take for granted Genesis, especially considering that the whole scripture is in harmony and personified thinking the Old Testament saints, ah, they could not have believed nor understand the concept of the resurrection. How about the writer of Hebrews speaking by chapter 11, by verse 17, accounts to what transpired with Abraham. It reads, by faith, when Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered God was even able to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did by receiving Isaac back to him. Revelation 21, 4, and also by verse 6, now provides a beautiful punctuation to this theme. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from them the spring of water. Um, yes, from the spring of water, life without payment. <laughs> it's amazing. Because in echoing his declarative statement, the Messiah is telling them the truth. But as verses 17 and 18 showed, the disciples want in their own need to have him physically there, clouded their understanding that he's been conveying for the past two chapters. And I tell you again, it's amazing and beautiful that John is recounting this now by chapter 16 because he takes an, a human approach in fact it's kind of quaint that the Lord will surmise his suffering to that of childbirth 
by verses 21 to 22. But I'll allow Pastor Jason to pick that up when he returns. So I did state to you, as we're coming now to a close, that I will make a note of that term a little while. And as it was shown, it's just a time reflection. For to us, it may seem long. But to the master of that time, he conveyed to them the brevity of what that hour was to entail. For, you see, imagine us as human beings upon death, when we lose a loved one, a lost friend, an acquaintance, we know that we would not see them physically no more. But if they abided in his love, as we abide in his love, we will know we will, be, we will see them yet again. So in this, our master states, my death will be a short time, but upon what you consider my disappearance, I am never away from you. For spiritually, by faith, your faith in me, it will be proved when I reappear again, your faith will be strengthened. Now, the message given to the apostles that time holds a profound lesson for us. You see, their experiences showed to us that sour, so sorrows and concerns can obscure our understanding of God's truth. However, we are urged to draw encouragement from their journey. You see, Yes, he did speak to them in a personal manner. But by faith, we witness the triumphant display that is the power of God to defeat death. For death was unable to hold Christ. And as emphasized in John 15, 1 through 11, those who abide in his love will also take in that joy that was told to the disciples. The reappearance of the master is a compelling testament to the power of God. And what makes us believe this? The indwelling spirit that became a guaranteed to our belief. Remember, as always, or with this particular process coming to the gospel, there was a message that was given to the apostles. The apostles also give us a message tying to this theme. Paul eloquently captures this assurance in 2 Corinthians. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not, we may not be found naked. For a while 
In this tent we groan, we are burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, and these are Paul's words. I'm continuing here. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at the home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Pastor Jason returns, as I stated, he's going to touch on that parable as which the master is speaking of that hour and that human concept, especially with the consideration of childbirth. But today, just in what we took on analytically, I wanted you to see the master never speaks words in redundancy. As he taught Adam in the cool of the garden, the repetition was met, but there was met with each newfound concept of knowledge to grow because Adam was still growing in knowledge while he was in the garden. And to show this same attitude with his disciples shows the consistency of the Messiah. So let us take encouragement. Let us take heart that in our own time of need, when we become sorrowful, when we're presented with God's truth, let not our cares overcome our belief, and our faith in him. Let's go to him in prayer.